All right, good afternoon, good morning. I think we're kind of in between here. So good to see all of you. Hey, make sure if you're not from Colorado that you're drinking plenty of water, all right? So we, uh, we don't have any really medical services to cart you out of here in a moment. But uh, so just, yeah, I just want to say that I'm not your dad or anything, but uh, if you drink coffee, it's, we're at 7,000 feet here. So every ounce of coffee needs to be matched by an ounce of water. To, just to break even, all right? So you got to, like, overdose on water the first couple of days you're here, right? So just, we say that to our desperation conference every summer, and we have kids just passing out, you know, with, so I want to say that to the adults, don't overdo it on coffee, drink lots of water, right? All right, so in this session, I want to I talk just for a moment about what this session is about. Uh, I want to I know who I'm talking to. How many uh, senior pastors are in the room right now? Ra- raise your hand if you're the lead pastor of your congregation, all right? So we have, good to have you, by the way. Grateful that you came. So we have a lot of you. Now, I think I could answer this question for you. How many of you want really great people around you, great teams, great men and women, people who are called by God, got great abilities? We all want that, every one of us. What I have found, though, and this is something Glenn and I are going to talk about today, is how do you keep those kind of people around you? Now, at New Life, we, as you know, if you know the New Life story, we are a church-planting church. We, we send out our best and our brightest to plant churches, and we love that. I love seeing young men and women raised up here, called, sent out. Uh, we, uh, Michael Faylauer is sitting right here. He's a, we, he was a part of our congregation. He's now in Corpus Christi. We've sent Aaron Stern to Fort Collins. We've sent Ross Parsley to Austin, Texas. We've sent Rob Brendel to downtown Denver. Greg Hampton is sitting here. He was a part of our, our team. He's about to go plant a church in the Quad Cities area of Illinois. So we believe in sending out laying on of hands, sending out the best staff that we have. If God has a call on anyone on our team to go plant a church, then we pray together, we resource that, uh, we talk about that, and we're going to talk about that in another breakout session. The reason I'm bringing that up is we believe in sending out. But we also believe that God sends people to us who are supposed to be a part of the team together for a long season, a long stretch. So how do you keep good people around you? Let me tell you a really quick story. This will kind of introduce uh, this session today. Uh, my wife and I, uh, we've been married 24 years. And we've adopted, both of our kids are adopted. And the first son that we adopted, we have a son and a daughter. The, this, when we adopted our first son, Abram, uh, it was uh, just a, the joy of our life. I mean, to finally have a son and the Lord opened up a, a miraculous door for us to adopt this little boy. In my mind, uh, Abram was going to grow up and be like me, like most dads assume, right? He was going to play baseball. He was going to root for the Cowboys and LSU Tigers, uh, maybe in the Broncos. Uh, he was, uh, I didn't know that then, I know it now. Uh, so uh, <laughs> he was just going to do everything that I do because I'm his dad, he's my son, and he should reflect me, right? The problem was that Abram's birth father was a nuclear physicist. So if you're around Abram right now, it's pretty apparent that he's not my biological son. I mean, he's genius. He's brilliant. He's got this fascinating engineering mind that God has given him. And so early on, when he was four or five years old, I, I, I just assumed that he was going to play baseball. Because I played baseball, he was going to do that. And so I bought him this just glove, and he's small for his size. So the picture of Abram with this gigantic baseball glove on his little hand, he's almost tilting over. He's got this big glove, you know. And so when, it, when he got old enough, I put him on a t-ball team. And assuming, again, that he's going to play baseball, right? He's my son, so he's going to play baseball. 
The problem is he cared nothing about baseball. He didn't care anything about it. He loved the uniform and he loved the ice cream after the game. But everything in between he had no interest in. The ball would be knocked out to him and in the outfield. The ball would roll by him and he would just watch it roll by. He was fascinated with the physics of the ball rolling by. Fascinated with the circumference of the ball. He just wasn't fascinated with picking it up and throwing it. Not at all. Couldn't catch. The ball would hit him. He'd cry. He just didn't have no interest in it. I'm telling you this story to tell you this. Listen, pastors, it is not our job uh, to call people around us to be like us. It's a good word. It's not our job. That's not the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. Our responsibility as leaders of our congregation is to discover what is God has put inside of people and call it out of them. Mm-hmm. Not to, so I think sometimes we confuse methodology mm-hmm. with DNA. So let's, let's, I want to clarify those two things today because that's what we're going to talk about in just a moment. DNA is important. It's shared DNA, shared value, shared principles, shared theology. DNA is very important to talk about what, what do we agree upon. Let's make sure we're agreeing upon the right thing. But I've, I, I, I had this conversation with a pastor, He's in, and they have an amazing success story. They have multi-site campuses all over their city. They're, they're growing really fast. And so he was, he was fascinated by the, 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 the parish uh, congregational campus model that we have here at New Life. And he was saying, does, uh, he said, Brady, doesn't it bother you that Glenn's doing ministry a little different than you at the main campus? It seems like uh, that y'all don't have the same DNA. I said, no, that's not true at all. Glenn and I have the exact same DNA. But you're confusing DNA with methodology. And, and I told him the story of Abram. Abram, uh, if you ask Abram, who is your dad? He'd say, he'd point to me. And if you ask Abram, what are some of the things that the Boyd household hold dear? He would repeat exactly what I would repeat. We believe in loving Jesus, loving each other, being generous with everything we have, uh, being kind to the poor. All those things that we share as values of our family, Abram would agree with. He's my son. We have shared DNA. But Abram's not going to be a baseball player. Mm. Abram's not going to uh, really care that much about sports the way I do as a hobby, right? His methodology for life, he's going to be an engineer probably, and he's going to invent something that's going to change the world. I'm never going to do that. That's not the way I'm wired. But we have shared DNA. Mm. We just have differing methodologies. Mm. And so today as we describe collaborative leadership between the two of us, Glenn and I, uh, are great friends. First of all, that's, that's a given. We, we have worked hard at becoming good friends, and we are very good friends. And there's a lot of unity among us. There's a lot of friendship among us. But Glenn and I are wired different. Glenn, Glenn reads things for fun that I would never consider fun. I read it, and I do, but then Glenn explains it to me after I read it. <laughs> and so we have, this, we have this shared strengths between each other. I have strengths that Glenn doesn't have. He has strengths I don't have. But so we're going to talk through that today and kind of talk through how do you have people on your team that are different than you, that are uh, maybe see things differently than you, and how do you attract and keep and build upon these differences on your team without it becoming a negative, it actually becomes a strength. So Glenn, you pick it up from there. That's amazing. And I I think the thing that um, what Pastor Brady's just said, this this is an ethos that comes out of you. I mean, it's not just sort of a principle. This is this is his life. And when you came here, you know, six years ago now, 
I mean, I think, to be honest, just because of the circumstances and the situations, I think there were a lot of us that weren't sure how to take this. You know, we, we didn't know that someone from the outside was coming in, and that, it, it felt a little bit like that. So you can imagine all of the, the you know, the, the great warmth we showed in welcoming Brady. I think, well, I think one of my first, in the first year here, I, you know, there's this f- funny, it's funny now, but there was an email that, you know, an email exchange that I had sent, you know, back to Brady and other pastors about some of the changes I thought were going to happen. And, you know, and I was trying to inform him of all the ways that Colorado's different than Texas, you know. And, um, yeah, it was, not, it was not polite. It was not good manners. It was, it was bad. It was immature. It was all of those things. But there is something gracious and humble about Brady that said, all right, I'll take some of that, but I want to see what's deeper inside of you. And I'll never forget the day after kind of the, the whole email debacle thing. Uh, Brady came and found me and he said, Glenn, I, what's going on in your heart? Like, I'm, we can talk about the actual manners and ethic, ethics or etiquette about that issue, but what's going on inside you? Because I, that's not the Glenn I think I know, you know? And I think there's, there's something powerful about a leader really trying to pay attention to the hearts of the people around you, to say, what's going on inside you? I want to pay attention to what's going on inside you. And I, I say that because fast forward, I don't know, five or six years later when we were started talking about this New Life Downtown idea and what if we, you know, we had the Sunday night service going for a couple of years and we were talking about this idea of what if we take this service but make it a Sunday morning thing in a different part of the city and it felt risky and it felt uneasy and it felt a a number of people on our team even were asking how does this what is this going to look like and how does this work and and one of the things you said in that meeting is you said I am paying attention to what God is doing in Glenn's heart and I'm watching the Lord at work and it's my job to release that and to allow that and that's huge um, because that's not, that's a lot of times as leaders, that's not the first thing we want to do. So I kind of had in my mind three words to kind of give a little bit of, of, a, of, of a flow to, to our, and jump in any of the, yeah. Yeah, let's not assume that you guys know what we're talking about yeah. here. So we have a campus downtown. This is your, what you're sitting in today is what we would call our main campus, main place. This is where New Life was birthed and started. About a year and a half ago, we uh, rented a high school auditorium, the oldest high school in our city in the downtown area of Colorado Springs, and we launched a campus. Now, in American church vernacular, that means uh, that there's someone down there uh, leading a team, and, but when it comes time for the preaching, that there's a screen comes down, the gigantic uh, person comes on the screen, and, that, and the same message is preached here, is preached there usually by the same person. And that works fine. And I don't have any, by the way, I want to say up front, I have no trouble no problem theologically, no problem with anyone that's doing campuses that way. Uh, there, are, there are some really dynamic communicators in our country right now that are great via video, that are gr- doing great work in uh, campuses, smaller campuses around their city and around their state via video. For us, though, we found ourselves with a, a good problem. I have a really strong team. Many of them are great communicators, one of which is Glenn. Glenn's a tremendous preacher communicator. So we, when we started this campus, one of the things we had to decide was, is it going to be Glenn kind of uh, opening up the service? Uh, is it going to be the worship team singing basically the same kind of songs, the same kind of liturgy, the same kind of uh, service plan that we have at the main campus? And then when it comes time for the preaching, is it going to be me on a video screen? Or can we reimagine what campus could be like given this team approach? And so we're not the only ones doing this. I just spent three or four days in New York City this past weekend 
with an amazing group of people there that are doing exactly what we're about to describe to you. There are people all over the world doing this. Yeah. Doxadeo, uh, Alan Platt's group is doing this all around the nation of South Africa. They have 15 different campuses, none of which are video. All of them are using collaborative leadership, collaborative speaking, yeah. uh, working as a team, working in tremendous unity with one another, and they're reaching 30 to 40,000 people on a weekend in the, in the nation of South Africa. So we're not, this is not new to us. We're not the only ones doing this. And so we want to talk today very candidly with you about the pluses and the minuses of this approach to campus model. I do think if I could be a futurist just for a moment, if I could predict uh, the future of the local church in America, let me say this to you, buildings like this are not going to be built very, very few of these buildings are going to be built ever again, especially outside the Bible Belt. If you're inside the Bible Belt, you may see a few of these big gigantic campuses being built outside the Bible Belt. The, the future of the local church is going to look like this. You've got to become smaller and more communal if you're going to get bigger and more influential. Well, please write that down and mark it. You're going to be smaller and more communal if you're going to become bigger and more influential. The campus model works for a lot of reasons. One is it, it brings the big body of believers down into one smaller, bite-sized community that is important for people, especially in the post-church postmodern, hedonistic world that we're trying to influence, they are not impressed with gigantic buildings and big personalities on the stage anymore. That's coming to an end. We're coming to the end of that age, especially if you're outside the Bible Belt. We have to be more intentional with community, with with, uh, bringing people into real relationships with one another, and oftentimes that means smaller meeting spaces. And, and there's ways of leveraging, you know, so I think Alan alluded this to, to this this morning. That you, we can, there are things I can leverage about being part of New Life Church. Resources, the strength of being able to start right away. Um, but on the other hand, we can also u- utilize the, the size of it to say, let's have a closer community. So if you had a spectrum and you said autonomy on the one end and, and um, maybe unity on the other, I think we're trying to blend both of those things. We're trying to have a certain degree of autonomy, but a strong degree of unity. You know? So one of the things for us is we teach through the same text or the same sermon series each week. So Brady and I will study together. We'll meet on Tuesday mornings. We kind of know what's coming the week ahead, so we've been doing some prep on our own. And we compare notes and compare findings. I mean, it's kind of fun. It's like a research team environment. You know, there's five or six other folks that join us, and we bring our ideas, and we bounce it around, and by Wednesday, it starts to look a little like an outline. By Thursday, it better look a little more like an outline, you know. But our outlines are going to be different, but this, the, the core of the, of the talk is the same. For example, we just taught through the Sermon on the Mount. We just spent 18 or 19 weeks or something, 17, 18, 19 weeks teaching through the Sermon on the Mount together. So every Tuesday morning, Glenn and I, along with about a half a dozen other communicators on our team, we gather, and we were taking the Sermon on the Mount text by text, going through the Sermon on the Mount. And so Tuesday morning was kind of really our time to talk theology, big ideas. What does this text really mean? Uh, What are the Beatitudes really saying to us today? And it's really a great meeting. And I want to say this to every one of you who communicate on a regular basis. I want to tell you today how... I believe I've become a much better communicator, teacher, and preacher by allowing people to speak into the message on Sunday. People from varying backgrounds, different, different uh, worldviews. I mean, we have a Malaysian-American here who has a completely different worldview in some ways because of where he grew up and because of where his parents raised him than I did growing up in North Louisiana. So 
by the way, your congregation is very, very diverse. All of our congregations are becoming more and more diverse. Very few people still live in the same town in which they grew up. All of you have people in your church that are from probably all over the U.S. If you have a church of 100, you poll the people in your church of 100. I guarantee you you'll find they're from all kinds of backgrounds, diverse backgrounds. So it makes sense if I'm preparing to teach a very diverse congregation that I should have diverse voices speaking into my message. If I'm, if I'm really intentional about reaching a diverse culture and a diverse community, then allow people, men and women, young and old, rich and poor, different theological bents to speak into the sermon and, and, and to, to be secure enough about it to let people challenge. Can I just real quickly yeah. give the three rules to these meetings, all right? This is going to really be, write, down, write this down, it's going to be very helpful for you. So we have that meeting on Tuesday. Yep. Then we have another meeting on Wednesday where, where the group even gets more diverse, where I... In that meeting, I preach my Sunday message in five minutes because I can, and you can too. Uh, if, if, if you were honest, you could really don't say Don't tell well, you the congregation. Don't tell your no, congregation You can do it in five. Cause, uh, we would never tell our congregation this, but I really could say everything I need to say in about five or ten minutes on Sunday morning, but that would just be, you know, that would be terrible. Nobody would want that, right? So in that Wednesday meeting, and I, preached, I preached my message in about five or ten minutes, sharing the big ideas of what I'm going to share on Sunday. Now, here are three rules. Number one, rule number one is very important. Everybody in that room can say anything they want. I tell them sincerely, I want to know right now that this is bad. I don't want to hear about it Sunday afternoon on Twitter that it was bad. I want to know now that it was bad. Save me the embarrassment of a bad sermon on Sunday by telling me on Wednesday that this stinks. Now, they all work for me, so that it took about two years for them to really think that I was telling the truth. And pastors, if you say this, you need to mean it. And you need to, you need to take off your empirical mask and la- uh, let people really speak into your life. And, and your, your team wants to tell you, because they don't want you to struggle up there on Sunday either, because they have to sit through it like two or three times. They don't want it to be bad either. They would rather tell you on Wednesday, this is really bad, and I'd rather tell you now than have to sit through this twice on Sunday because it's going to be bad, and I don't want to sit through it. So, they, uh, so tell me if it's bad. Tell me honestly if it's bad. All right, rule number two is I don't have to take any of their suggestions. I don't. I just tell them that. If you tell me it's bad, I might disagree. I may think it's awesome. And if my wife thinks it's awesome, then it trumps all of your opinions. <laughs> So I don't have to take any of your suggestions. Don't let your feelings be heard. If Glenn goes, Pastor Brady, I think that's just a, you know, I don't know if that's, that's going to work. And I say, no, it's going to be awesome. And I just, and I charge ahead, all right? So uh, I have the right to ignore any of their advice or accept it, okay? That's rule number two. All right, rule number three is the hardest one, the most difficult, really. Rule number three is if you give me something amazing, I mean Revel, I mean, it's just revelation, and it changes my view of the scriptures and makes me charge after God better than I've ever charged. If you give me that kind of, and I share it on Sunday, you're not getting any public credit for it. <laughs> and it may end up as a chapter in one of my best-selling books. And I might... And you'll the, footnote it there. I'll you'll footnote, footnote it there. and say, this happened in a, a meeting, and I forget who told me. <laughs> I think it was... I don't know. But, all right, now this is difficult because... Honestly, you're giving up your intellectual property rights by being in that meeting, which is a good legal term for if you got a good idea, I'm going to steal it. That's what, it's what it means. So that's hard sometimes because we have some very creative people in the room, and they say, well, and on Sunday when I say what they told me on Wednesday, and I say it on Sunday, and everybody goes, <gasps> and everybody thinks that was my idea, but they're sitting on the front row knowing it was their idea, that's a hard thing to wrestle with. Like, that was my idea. 
this sermon would have stunk if he hadn't told me this. That was the only good part of the sermon. It was mine. And I tell him, hey, that's the price of being in this meeting. Sometimes I want to steal all your great ideas. And, but God is a good accountant, I say. And when he get to heaven, you're going to get a great reward for get, making your pastor sound awesome on Sunday. Those are the three rules. Say whatever you want. I can totally ignore you. If I use your idea, you get no public credit. Those are the three rules. Now, these meetings are fun, though. It makes the meetings really, really fun. But that's the way we study together throughout the week, and it has only improved, I'm just telling you. If you study alone, uh, I I think you're doing yourself an injustice as a a communicator. Learn to put some people around you. And don't just preach it to your wife on Saturday night, by the way. Or your husband, if you're a woman and you're preaching, don't just preach it to your husband on Saturday night. It's late. They're going to tell you what you want to hear. They want to go to bed. Do it throughout the week. I think sermons are like a good stew. And I, I, I don't, if you're here today and you're, the only time you can study is on a Saturday, I totally get that. I've been bivocational before. I understand pastoring a congregation where I don't have the luxury of that during the week. But I think sermons should start brewing in you early in the week. It's like a good stew sitting on the stove. And let it percolate and kind of stew there throughout the week. And I think a lot of times if we're, if we're throwing something together on Saturday night or throwing something together last minute, it's like a good microwave meal. Those are good from time to time. It's just not good week after week. Well, and, I, and I'd add to that, you know, you might be thinking, well, I don't have a big team or someone to do this with. With downtown, I mean, there's, there's really only one uh, now, two other full-time people uh, with me. But we do the same thing. We kind of replicate what Brady does with his team up here. I'm trying to do with a team down there. So we do this thing Tuesday mornings, a smaller sermon team. Then Wednesday, a larger team with the main campus. And then Thursday, I have a group of people. Most of them volunteers, but that I feel that I, that I recognize as leaders that have different perspectives on things. And we talk about it for an hour. And it, do, it does a couple things. One, it invites people into um, owning sort of what God is saying to the congregation. You know, if people are allowed to weigh in, they have a greater um, possibility of buying in. When people weigh into a decision or into a sermon, then, then, then when you preach, you feel like you've already got an amen corner, you know? Because those five people, you, you were with me when we planned this If phrase. they were telling the yeah, truth. If, if they were telling the right. truth. Right. You know, and, and, and secondly, it is a good way to raise up more leaders, to, to, to invite people into the process so they see it. Okay, so can I do the yeah, three words? Yeah, So I was thinking through three words that, that you could kind of say maybe are three keys to making this work. And they're pretty general, but you get the sense of this. And some of this has already been, been alluded to. And the first is humility. It's obvious from the get-go, even when Brady's talking about the story of him and Abram, and he's talking about inviting others into the team. It, it begins with humility, and it is humility on the part of the leader, but it's also humility on the part of the people on the team. Because there is a sense in which you, you say, I'm setting aside my vision of leadership, uh, uh, the leader, as being the heroic personality. Do you know what I mean? I think we have this kind of heroic individual um, mythology in our, in our minds and in our hearts. And humility says, actually, the way of the kingdom is upside down to the heroic leader. It's the, the, heroic, the, the leader in the kingdom is the one who lays down his life and lets it multiply through others. Um, so there's a, there's a huge amount of humility to that. The second thing, I think, is clarity. So even with Brady talking about the rules of the meeting, when you say clarity, and um, you're helping people know this is how it works. This is the structure of it. This is what we'll do with regard to sermons. This is how it works with regard to decisions. 
I've, I've taught through on Acts 15, you know, the Jerusalem Council where they're making the decision about what to do with Gentiles. This is maybe the single most important staff meeting in church history because everything about the church hinged on what they were going to do with Gentile believers, right? And if you look at the, the way that things go in Acts 15, there really are three modes of this. There's three parts of this. The first is the discussion where they have Paul and Bar- you know they have Paul way in, and then you have Peter way in, and then you have some other fair believers from among the sect of the Pharisees. They're weighing in. I mean, talk about a diversity of opinions. Everybody's weighing in here on this discussion. The discussion reflects the diversity of this growing church. And then you have finally a decision. And there's James who stands up at the end of, you can see at the end of Acts 15, where James says, okay, this is what I think we should do. It is my judgment that we should da 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 And I've often thought one of the ways to sabotage or undermine collaborative leadership in your church environments is to have a leader that makes the decision but with the God card. So James could have pulled all kinds of cards, like half-brother of Jesus, you know, I mean, lots of stuff. <laughs> now, guys, I know what Jesus really would have wanted. This is what we're going to His language is very sort of, this is my judgment. I've heard you. This is what I'm going to do. And I think that's what Brady does. We sit in a lot of meetings. There's a diversity of opinions in the discussion. But when it comes time for the decision, we know who's making the decision. Does that make sense? So this is part of the clarity thing, is in knowing in the clarity, where does this work? Oh, the, the opinions come in in the discussion. But when it comes to the, the decision, there's a clear decision maker. But the decision maker is humble. <laughs> the decision maker isn't saying, guys, you're, you know, no way. This is what God has said, and that's what we're going to do, and I don't care what you think. Right? That's a good way to have uh, yes people around you. And this is where you, I, I, I just think we stop growing at that point. So I'm for, I, I was telling someone this recently. I'm 46 years old. I've been doing pastoral ministry. I've been in pastoral ministry now 16 years. And uh, I have enough uh, knowledge and enough, uh, I know enough facts about the Bible to coast on in for the next 10 years. But we just, we've got to, we've made up our mind here at New Life that we're going to be a, a church of learners and readers and thinkers so that none of us get stuck. And I think it's important, especially for those of you that are in, in, like in my age group, that 45 to 55-year-old range where do I need them to come up with a Sunday sermon? I do not need Glenn to help me with a Sunday sermon. I can come up with Sunday sermons on my own. But what happens is we look up one day and we have no one around us that are real communicators. We, we have a team of people around us that are good people. They're sincere people, but they're not thinkers. And they're not given permission to think and to challenge. And uh, I'll tell you another thing that I'm doing covertly, and they all know this. I'm trying to raise up preachers, teachers around me. And how, do you, how, how best to raise up preachers, teachers around you than to include them in the preaching, teaching process that you're going through yourself. And there, there are so many young men and women right now that are just dying to learn how to craft a sermon, to shape a message. They just, and, and they're getting some help maybe at seminary. They're getting some help. In, but the, 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 the day-to-day, week-to-week preparation of coming up with a sermon that helps build and lead a congregation is seminaries do a somewhat good job, but it only really, you really only learn those lessons when you're doing it. Well, and, and beyond the sermon, I mean, even like hospital visits, I've gone with you on some. And my, my first year here at New Life, um, I was an understudy or apprentice to Ross Parsley. I don't know if Ross is in the room or not. But 
but basically wherever Ross went, I went. So if Ross was doing a funeral, I was doing a funeral. If Ross was visiting someone, I would. Now, did Ross need me? No, except when he needed a piano player at the funeral then, kind of. <laughs> but, but he didn't need me. But that was how I learned how to pastor people. And I think that's the whole thing about collaborative ministries to say, is to say, look, I don't, we don't have to have you, but yet we kind of do. And that is how the gospel is multiplied. Jesus sending out you know, them two by two. So humility, clarity. I want to say one more thing about Acts 15. So if, if you're the outlining sort of type and you've got humility and clarity, the subset of clarity would be the, this, the discussion and the decision, right? There's one more part of Acts 15, and that is the delivery of the decision. How many of you know in the church world, you can have a great staff meeting and come to a great decision, but if the delivery of that decision is poorly executed or poorly communicated, lots of people aren't happy. And we, we've lived through that in the good, the bad, and the ugly of that, and we're getting better at, at it, thank God. You know, but we, because we've had a lot of young people on our team trying to figure out, oh, how do we deliver things properly? Do you know how... In Acts 15, they deliver this critical decision. They deliver it with a letter that James has written, but they deliver it personally. Paul and, is it, I'm blanking out if it's Silas or Barnabas, but, but they go with him back to Antioch, back to the city to say, here's the decision. Here's the verdict from the council at Jerusalem. It's, it's deeply personal, and it's unmistakably clear. <laughs> it's written. And I've, I've often thought about how humbling it might have been for Paul to carry a short little paragraph from James about the gospel and the Gentiles. Think of this. Paul's going to write Romans. Paul's going to write Galatians, which is just on this subject. And you wonder if Paul's looking at James's little paragraph and he's like, you want me to say this? Do you know you could also actually go say this and you could say this and you could trace that back to this. And James is like, no, just say this. <laughs> and there's something about this, this team that makes it work because they're there in the discussion, they're there with the decision, and they're part of the delivery. They're part of it. But see, that's, that's the clarity of this, is knowing where, where are we collaborating? Oh, we're collaborating in the discussion, we're collaborating on the decision, but you make the call. We're collaborating on the delivery of it because, and you've said this in many of our executive team meetings, if you can't own a decision outside the doors of this meeting, then you don't belong inside the doors of the meeting. Right? So, Paul, if you're going to go back to Antioch and, and play around with what we decided, you, sh- you shouldn't be the one to go. But if you can carry this message, go. And he does. He, all of us know this. No matter uh, what size church we're leading, people are prone to nod yes with their head and no with their heart. And then we wonder why decisions weren't carried out. Like everybody in the meeting said they agreed. Everyone said, everyone, when I asked them, do you all agree with this decision, they nodded yes with their head. But in their heart, they were going... And that's, this is where it breaks down in collaborative leadership. We don't talk about hard issues. We, so we, you have to give people permission yes. in meetings to disagree. Yes. If you don't give them permission to disagree, they, they all want their jobs. They, they need paychecks. And so what they'll do over time is they'll go, yes, okay, we agree with that. I hope no one asks me about it because I really don't agree with it. <laughs> but I'll nod yes in this meeting because I'm tired, I'm hungry, uh, I want to go, I don't... And if I do disagree, I have a price to pay if I disagree with this guy or disagree with this woman. And so I believe as the senior leader, I have to go to probably greater lengths than anyone else in this organization. No matter, and I've pastored, my first time I pastored, I pastored a church of 50 people in a farming town in West Texas. And I had a part-time secretary. That was my staff. 
As I understand where you're, I, and I've, I've been a part of a church plant in Dallas, Fort Worth, where we were, everybody was doing everything. So I know that feeling. And then I've been a part of a mega church. So I've been in every spectrum of leadership from small farming town in West Texas to church plant, to being the pastor of a large team and a large congregation. And listen, the dynamics do not change regardless of where you are. You have to give people permission to disagree with you, to speak honestly with you, and you have to welcome that. That's why we're all frustrated as leaders. They walk out of the meeting and nothing was executed, nothing was carried out. It's because they were saying yes with their head and no with their heart. So we deal deal with both issues in meetings, the heart of the matter and the the head of the matter. Let's talk about what we're thinking and what we're feeling. What we're thinking and what we're feeling. How does this make you feel? How do you think about this? How do you feel about this? Because head and heart have to agree or nothing gets done. Which segues perfectly into the last key. So humility, clarity, and lastly, honesty. Um, Honesty is important. And and honesty is probably the one that is the most ongoing, you know, because dynamics of situations change. And I think one of the things Brady does such an incredible job of is giving permission for us to be honest. I mean, you'll frequently ask me, okay, hey, Glenn, am I doing anything that's frustrating you? What's, what's slowing you down? Is something, do you find anything about the situation um, to be an obstacle, to be frustrating? And, and uh, the first time you asked me that, I was taken aback because I've never had a leader ask me that question. Uh, am I doing anything that's frustrating you? Do you think you're doing anything that's frustrating the people we're leading? I know I am. Of course I am. But I've never even thought as a leader to ask the people that are serving with me, working with me to say, am I, in what ways am I <laughs> frustrating you? Because that is inviting. You can, you can say to people, hey, tell me anything you're thinking anytime. But you're not going to go knock on the boss's door and be like, hey, so I just want to tell you, um, yeah, never mind. Anyway, <laughs> you know, it's really, so when you invite it and you say, no, tell me, how, how was that feel? Was that okay? Is this going to work? Is this, for, you know, and, and honestly, I, I've, I've found that the result of that has been that there hasn't been frustrations in, in this relationship. There has been nothing but generosity and graciousness because it was preempted by him giving permission for it. Does that make sense? I think when you lock up and say, oh, I don't want to give permission, that'll just open a can of worms. All you're doing is give, giving the devil permission to let those things fester in people's hearts. And then all of a sudden, people mysteriously get a call to go somewhere else. Why are all my good people leaving? It's a great question. I get asked it all the time. I mean, I get frustrated phone calls all the time from leaders. They say, you know, this guy walked into my office, and I thought he was with me. I thought she was with me. I thought we were going to live life together, and they just got a gig down the road, and it's for $5,000 more a year, and they took it. They just left me. And I think, I mean, sometimes there's two factors, two things at play there. I think there are a lot of young, immature leaders who are fatherless and motherless, and so they don't know how to relate to a father and a mother. That's true. We have a fatherless generation that we're pastoring right now. The, the 20-somethings, uh, they, don't, they don't believe in institutions. They've given up really on the idea of that marriage is sustainable or even attractive anymore. The local church, uh, they've seen a lot of wounds and hurts in the local church, so they carry all that baggage into our staff. They come in onto our team as a volunteer, onto our staff maybe as a part-time person or maybe as a full-time person. And they don't know how to relate to spiritual moms and dads because they've never seen it modeled. So I, do, I understand that we have a lot of immature young leaders out there making bad choices and abandoning the church for a better gig down the street. But I also believe that we have a lack of moms and dads 
who give permission to make mistakes and give permission to say things. And so when, they, when these young leaders feel frustrated, they bolt and run for something that seems more attractive because they had never been given permission to express themselves, to make mistakes, to, uh, you know, I think if you're, uh, the good news is we have a really young staff at New Life. The bad news is we have a really young staff at New Life. And if you're not willing to put up with some messes along the way, and he's not one of our, this is, I'm not talking about Glenn here. Glenn's very mature. But I'm talking about the young 20-somethings. I'm talking about the college millennial age. Do you want those leaders at the table? Do you want those leaders in your congregation? Yes. We're begging for them. We want them. And so do you give them room at the table, though? Do you give them, are they, do they have a chance to weigh in, like Glenn said, to buy in, but to weigh in before they buy in? And I think moms and dads, it's, 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 a, we have to be moms and dads in the local church before CEOs and leaders. Yes. Yes. We don't need more CEOs in the local church. We need more moms and dads. Yep. Yep. And I, I, I appreciate leadership training. I read every leadership book that's out there. I just think first, let me get something else right before I become a leader. Let's become moms and dads before we become leaders. Yep. Let's get that right first so that we can lead through the lens of mom and dad. So all the leadership things that you're learning and teaching right now, ask yourself this question. Am I leading through the lens and calling of mom and dad or am I leading through the lens of church CEO? And the reason the, reason the corporate world sees people leaving their co- company going to another company is because we have a CEO mindset. If you want sons and daughters around us, if we want to attract sons and daughters, then we first have to be moms and dads. And I really do think it's it's incumbent upon young leaders to grow up, and I think it's incumbent upon people my age and older to be moms and dads. And when those two things come together, that's when local church is at its best and most powerful is when moms and dads are leading sons and daughters. That's when church becomes fun. That's when it becomes life-giving. And I'm just telling you, I'm having the best time of my life at New Life. We have lots of challenges. We have some of the same challenges you're having, uh, uh, discipling people, paying, paying the bills, all those stresses and challenges that I have, you have. But it becomes fun when you're facing those challenges as moms and dads leading sons and daughters. That's when it becomes more fun life-giving along the way. All right, so I know we can go on and on, but it's 12.15, and I know you're getting hungry, and I appreciate Yvette mentioning enchiladas right before we came up here today, so um, I don't know if you caught that. I was already hungry when she said that. So, but I, we'd like to take some questions, maybe some thoughts or questions. Can, we some, get, can someone help with the microphone? We need a couple of people maybe. with mics here, so if you, uh, there's a mic here. Oh, thank you, Greg. And, and Greg's going to help us. By the way, this is our church planter right here, Greg Hampton. Uh, if you're in the Quad Cities area of Illinois, a great church is about to be planted there. But, uh, yeah, just take the questions, and we'll, ro- we'll roam around and bring it to you. If, your hand, if you'll raise your hand, we'll bring a mic to you probably. Go ahead. Can you talk a little bit about the transition from not having a team in, into moving into that? And you, I don't know if you mentioned or not how long those meetings actually take weekly in collaborating, and, and has it gotten quicker? Have you gotten quicker at doing that process from week to week? Absolutely. It's, now, because expectations are clear, I don't have to spend as much time casting vision for why we're having a meeting. So on Tuesday morning, uh, normally this, it, it would happen this morning. Today is Tuesday, 8.30 a.m., my office, coffee is on, our team gathers, and sometimes that meeting will last 30 minutes, you know, depending on the text that we're talking about. Uh, like we're starting a new sermon series this coming Sunday. So I'm kind of bummed that we missed our meeting this morning because it's a great time to kind of get ideas and thoughts. So the sermon this Sunday is probably not going to be that great. Yeah, no. But... Um, but um, but that meeting can last 30 minutes. It can last an hour. Sometimes 
we'll get into topics where some really good conversations happening and it'll go an hour and a half. So I look up, it's 10 a.m. Tuesday mornings, my first study morning. I don't feel at all cheated by that though, because what happens is they just save me about six or seven hours of personal study and reflection by being in that room with me. And I think pastors, that if you're spending more than 20 hours a week preparing a 30-minute sermon, i got some good news for you. I'm down to about 10 hours a week right now because of the team that I have around me. I'm spending about 10 to maybe, on some Sundays, maybe 12 hours a week on a a 30-minute Sunday sermon because these guys are reading. uh, They're reading things that I'm not reading. They have perspectives that would have taken me a long time to dig up on the internet or dig up through conversation, they're offering it to me. They're, they're bringing to me plates of information that I didn't have to cook myself. And it's saving me an amazing amount of time. It's actually giving me more time to lead than just prepare sermons. And uh, if you're a senior pastor, you know, there are three things you got to be good at. You got to lead, you got to lead the team, whether you're staff or volunteers, you still got to lead your team. You got to, you got to preach every week and Sundays come around with an alarming regularity, right? I mean, my most depressing day is Monday, right? Because I've got to do this again next Sunday. So we've got to lead the team. We have, to, we have to teach the congregation. But we also have to pastor people. We can't get out of that. I, I, I go to hospitals. I do funerals and weddings like the rest of you. Uh, I, I, I go meet with people. So we have to lead our team. We have to teach our congregation. And we have to pastor the people of our congregation. And if you're not good at one of those three things, admit it up front. And surround people around you that can help build that. Well, for me, Sundays are, uh, I love to preach, but I'm glad when it's over. I know other people are saying I'm glad when it's over too. But, uh, but the point is, I realized in order for me to do those other two things really well, to lead the team and to pastor my congregation, I needed some help studying. So that I wasn't spending 20 hours a week preparing a 30-minute sermon. These guys and the, the team that I have around me, the men and women around me, have shrunk that time down. And so if the meeting goes 30 minutes or the meeting goes an hour and a half, I think it's a blessing. I see it as a huge win for me. Yep, go back there. You mentioned earlier about uh, having your meetings or staff gatherings where you share decisions. There's an atmosphere of humility, but people have the freedom to disagree. Uh, Walk me through, so someone expresses something that they disagree on. How do you work through that as a team to where it doesn't end in division? Well, we, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. Glenn can help me answer that. But Glenn, division and strife is not tolerated among us. We strive for unity. Unity is a big deal. And uh, I, I feel like that has to be talked about out in the open. Uh, we, there's a way to honorably disagree, and there's a way to dishonorably disagree. And I think, I think that has to be taught and modeled. When, when Glenn, and the, and the, the, when he talks about disagreeing with me, it's never, it's never disrespectful. But contrarily, I don't, I don't disrespect them when I disagree with them either. So it's mutual. And sometimes the leader, the primary leader, gets away with a lot more disrespect than he allows his team to get away with. And it has to be both ways. So if I disagree with Glenn, it's never disrespectful. I don't pull out the, I can't remember the last time I said to Glenn, if ever, Glenn, I'm the senior pastor, you're going to do it my way. I've never even said that. I don't even think about that when I'm talking to Glenn. That's not even a consideration in my mind that Glenn's going to do this because I'm the boss. But, but they are one-on-one follow-up conversations. Sometimes you'll sense a hot button in a meeting that it really hit struck on some emotions. And, and I mean, I, we could think of a few examples. But, 
But it requires coaching after, outside the meeting, one-on-one, -on -one, to say, okay, so what was going on there? And what, what are you really concerned about? What are you really afraid of? What are you really, you know? Uh, and sometimes it's between other team members, and, and Brady or Garvin or others have helped us, um, <laughs> have facilitated our going to one another and working that through. Like one of, the, one of the things I think happens is group settings are not the time to settle personal issues. Personal issues have to be settled in personal ways. And a lot of times, especially if you're passive-aggressive, and none of you are going to raise your hand because you're passive-aggressive. You won't raise your hand if I tell you. All you passive-aggressive people, raise your hand. They'll go. <laughs> All right, but what happens in a meeting sometimes because you lack either the courage or the conviction to go to someone personally and settle an issue if you have something between each other. I mean, what does Matthew tell us to do? If, you got, if there's a problem between you, go to the person. Don't immediately bring your personal issues into the group meeting. And that's happened. We had about three meetings in a row one time. This is not long ago. So if you think we got all this squared away and we're just this well-oiled machine here, I've got news for you. I was back in January of this year. We had about three meetings in a row where all these personal issues were coming up in the group meeting. And it was frustrating to me. And I think I, I may have said a bad word, like, stop this, whatever. And I fill in the blank. And I was like, stop this. And so I, I realized what was happening is that we were not allowing for enough one-on-one -on -one personal interaction. So personal frustrations were kind of building in, yes. in people. And we were bringing it into group meetings. And then instead of throwing, I, I call it throwing the grenade in the middle of the table to, to debate an issue, we were throwing grenades at each other. Yes. And so be very careful if you're leading a meeting to say, if you have a personal issue, if Glenn and I are upset with one another, I try to settle that before I come into a group meeting because it will come out of me. It will come out of me. I, I will be aggravated with Glenn in front of people, violating the very thing that Jesus told us to do. If you have a problem, don't let the sun go down on your wrath in a timely way. The same is true in marriage as it is on a staff. If you have a problem with someone, I'm, I'm, not, I'm very... I'm very uh, extroverted, so confrontation doesn't bother me. I, enjoy, I actually kind of enjoy it, wake up looking forward to it sometimes. <laughs> but for someone who's introverted, and Glenn's not at all, but there are people on your team that are going to be more introverted and tend to be more passive-aggressive. Yeah. And so you have to tell people, listen, we are called by our master to go to one another if we're frustrated. And solve that before we come into a group meeting. Do not throw people under the bus and in front of the group if you didn't lack the courage or the conviction to go to them personally. That's when you get in trouble at New Life. Yeah. You get in trouble in my meetings if you come in and throw personal issues into a group setting, but you lack the courage or the conviction to go to them personally. That's a, that's a maturity issue. It is a, it's, a lack of, it's, a lack of, it's a lack of maturity. And you've got to grow up. If you're going to be in a group meeting, you've got to grow up. And growing up means we go to one another in love and we speak to one another the truth in love so that the devil doesn't gain a foothold on our staff and, in our, and ultimately in our congregation. And it would also be true, even if it was a, a more complex ideological difference, that it would take more time to see from the other person's point of view. Does that make sense? Like I've had a number of those things where it feels like a family, you know, like in a family when the kids kind of grow up and then they move away and they're raising their children in a different way than you're raising your children. You know, and you get together at the reunions and there's this like this underlying like, mm, well, you know what they do and you know how they are gluten-free or whatever, you know, <laughs> organic, you know. Or spanking versus not spanking. spanking and not. Yeah, yeah, they, right. they don't shop at Walmart or they do shop at, you know, whatever. I think there, there is room sometimes, and I've had to do a fair share of this, to say, okay, this tension that's showing up in our meetings is because it's obvious we see things from two different angles. 
help me see things the way you're seeing them for a minute. And that takes longer than a group. You can't do it in a group setting. Yep. So you've talked about the fact that as a senior pastor, you make the final decision. But in, reg- in regards to sermon topics, first, how far in advance do you s- decide what the message is going to be? And second, how do you come to that decision as to what is going to be the content of each series? So that's a great question. Number one, I've, I'm usually uh, three to six months out planning what I'm speaking on. Right now we have the rest of this year planned what I'm going to be speaking on. We're already thinking about January, February, March, April, May. There are some things you need to talk about every year. You need to talk about family, marriage, parenting, finances. Those are things you can't talk about those really too much in our culture today. So usually every year we're going to, we're going to, we're going to focus in on the family, on marriage, on relationships between people, like, just like we're talking about now. That's going to be a part of our sermons throughout this, the year. But we, we also teach through books of the Bible here. We've taught, we just got through teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So, uh, it, but it's all very prayerful. Eugene Peterson, who, was, who spoke here last year at our conference, gives a great definition of the role of a pastor that has really influenced me. And it's very, very simple, yet very, very complex. It's, he says the primary role of a pastor is to pay attention and call attention to what God is doing between him and people, between other people and each other. So think about this, boil it down to one sentence. Pay attention to what God's saying to your congregation and call attention to it. Yep. So you, all of this cannot be done through the lens of church growth marketing principles. That's, we don't think like that. All of this is done through consideration of let's, what's happening in our congregation. What's, what's happening in our city? When there are, uh, I'll, I'll give you one example. We had buyers come through our city back in June of this year. So in June of this year, uh, we were sitting here in our parking lot watching our our friends and neighbors' houses burned down here. And that next Sunday was at the Sermon on the Mount, the passage on divorce. All right, it's not time that next Sunday for me to stand up and teach a sermon on divorce when three days earlier, 27 families in our church had everything they owned burned to the ground. So by paying attention, that's, I mean, I'm not to be Captain Obvious here, but that, that's obviously not a Sunday to stand up and preach on divorce. That's the, that's the time to get up and be pastoral, to love, to encourage, to, to rally as a church family, right? To love one another. So I think you have to be super sensitive to what's happening in the congregation, what's happening in, our, in families. Uh, I forget, Eugene quoted this guy that he never prepared a Sunday sermon until he walked through the neighborhood on Tuesday. What's his name? George Buttrick, pastor. Who was a very influential person to Eugene. So if you're not walking through the neighborhood of your congregation, Sunday sermons are going to fall flat. That's why meeting with people, doing weddings, doing funerals, meeting with people, having conversations with your congregation is the way the Lord sometimes opens our ears and eyes to what's happening. And that's what shapes and forms a lot of our sermons a lot of times, being aware of what's happening, paying attention and calling attention to what God is doing in our congregation is step number one yeah. to preparing sermons on Sunday. And we'll, Brady will bring a few ideas. Hey, guys, I'm thinking about covering something like this or this or this. And we'll say, yeah, that's great or not. You know, or sometimes we, we might bring an idea and say, do you think some point, so at some point we should do a series on da 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 you know? But when it finally gets mapped out, it, it's his call. So how did you guys go about, maybe Brady, how did you go about building your team to start with? And does that change out? Do you rotate people in and out? 
I do rotate people in and out. It's a great thing. And I think there are some people because of the nature. For example, if you're pastoring a, a smaller church where these would be all be volunteers, I think it's probably even more important to rotate these people because they get busy or they're, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a high commitment to come once a week for an hour. That's a big commitment for people. But I do, uh, I do tend to rotate them out, and I do tend to choose people based on uh, areas of my own weakness, number one. Like I said, um, I, a lot of the people in that, that Tuesday meeting have uh, differing uh, viewpoints than me, and I enjoy that. I really enjoy hearing some differing viewpoints, so I try to pick people that I know are going to uh, naturally uh, challenge some of the things that I'm thinking. And it, so it helps me grow iron sharpening iron. I like people who are uh, in that meeting who are uh, okay be- with being verbal. I don't want someone standing there with their best ideas and they never say it. So if you're going to sit in that meeting and you're not going to say anything, you're just taking up oxygen. I mean, I need somebody who will talk and disagree and, and challenge. Um, I need someone who's going who's, who's to think out loud with me. I'm very verbal. So it, I think it's important to put people in that meeting who strengthen you who are going to challenge you, not just always agree with you. Um, there's a couple of people that agree with me a lot. I, it helps my feelings. Maybe it helps me <laughs> feel better about myself. But I, I think it's look for diversity, number one. Look for diversity of opinions. Look for people who will speak up and, and talk. Uh, look for people who read things you don't read. Uh, you know, I read ESPN magazine when I'm really bored and I'm, if I want to read myself to sleep. I'm looking for people who will read things outside of my primary passion zone, if I could call it that, to expand myself. I've been introduced to some great theologians that I've never really read that much about 10 years ago. I, I knew their name, but I didn't read their books. Well, now I'm finding myself hunting these books down because I, I allowed people who were passionate from different viewpoints into that meeting, and it stirred something up in me that, wow, that, that is good. I wish, I'd, I wish I had read that 20 years ago, but I didn't, but now I am. So look for diversity, look for people who are going to speak and look for people who are not divisive. I mean, just think about, I, I want people who can agree and we all have coffee afterwards, right. who, who are, who are a bit thick, thick skinned in that meeting, thin skinned people, you know, who are going to be always aggravated or have their feelings hurt. I don't, I don't need to manage them after the meeting. You know, I need, I need grownups in that meeting. You know, they can be 20 years old, but they just need to have some maturity about them that they can talk and discuss. And then just to be clear, there's, there's different types of teams, obviously, that, that we're all kind of lumping into this one thing. So, and if you had a spectrum of how interchangeable is it versus not, you know, the, the team that changes the least is the executive team or department heads, those kinds of positions of where they're running areas, you know, and the team that is interspersed the most or that, is, you know, changes out the most is the Wednesday uh, morning team. Wednesday morning is... The, the, when Brady said there's a broader team that comes in and he preaches a sermon in five minutes, that group, I think, revolves a lot. And the Tuesday team is sort of somewhere in between that. Yeah, well, I, I love uh, fresh voices in those Wednesday meetings especially. Somebody that hasn't been in the meeting, they, they come in all bright-eyed about it, and they are excited about it. So if they're not excited about the meeting, if they're not happy about the meeting, if they're not charged by that kind of meeting, then I don't need that. I need someone who's really engaged with me who really cares about the Sunday sermon, who really wants the best sermon to come out of me on Sunday. Who, so they have to, you know, like me a bit, and, but also love the church and, and wants the best, and they have that kind of attitude about themselves. It makes for, it's honestly those two meetings, and I'm in meetings all the time. 
But those two meetings are my two favorite meetings. That Tuesday morning sermon meeting where these guys helped launch me into my study and that Wednesday meeting where I get tons of great feedback for Sunday do more for me as a pastor than any other meetings I'm in. And I just want to, you know, it may not, you know, I know there's a lot of introverted, studious pastors who it just, it, you would rather be naked in the, in, in the public square than to have someone in your study with you. I mean, I understand that, but I just promise you, you'll grow uh, and mature and your preaching and teaching and leading. Every other part of your pastoral ministry will increase if you allow for some voices into your life. I just, I'm telling you from experience, it will, it will multiply what you're doing. So I know it's 1230. I want to leave you time to go eat and come back and be ready. We have some great breakouts this afternoon. We'll stand around and, we'll stand around and talk. Uh, I'm going to go to lunch in a minute too, so um, I'm hungry. So uh, God bless all of you. Let me pray over the food. Father, bless our afternoon. We commit it to you. We give it to you. Bless our food and our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great afternoon. Come back at 2 o'clock for some great breakout sessions.